The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. All right, I'm joined by Eve Ash, who the the title of your podcast is is very disturbing for me personally. Uh, she's the host of the podcast Who Killed Bob, and I'm against really anybody killing anybody named Bob. That just goes against everything that I stand for. Um, but Eve, thank thank you so much. Is, I think it's Friday for you right now. It is Friday. Yeah, I always get mixed up when I talk to people in Australia, or even what day of the week it is. So you tell me a little bit about yourself, Eve. So you. You have like your CV includes everything from motivational speaking to, uh, to doing TV series, documentaries, podcasts, business videos. So, so tell me about yourself. Who were you, and and how did you come to be doing this podcast? Well, I began as a psychologist, and I started training other psychologists using video. And it just went from there. I set up my own business. I started making comedy films. And was just proceeding, making films and a few documentaries until one of my team who worked with me many years before told me that his mother-in-law, there was a problem and it all ended up that she ended up in prison. And that's how I got involved. Is that, so was that this case, the um, was it Bob Chappelle case? Yeah, Bob Chappell. Chappell is pronounced. Okay. Um, so- now, now, before you did, have you done other true crime stuff before? I, I see that you have, you've produced like a thousand, pro, literally a thousand programs on uh, TV documentary and podcasts. Is, is this your first kind of delve into true crime or has that always kind of been your focus? Well, unfortunately, this woman who is the subject of the case has been in prison for 13 years. During that time, I've made a feature documentary. I've then taken it further and made a six-part TV series, which is now on Discovery Plus and Amazon. And then it's still been going and there's still more coming out. So then I made the podcast, but it's all about the same case. The same case. Okay. What is the, the t- what are the titles of the shows you have on Discovery and Amazon if people want to check them out? Um, Undercurrent True Crime Invest, True, sorry, Undercurrent True Murder Investigation. Okay. Um, and so, the, so what made you decide to shift from doing TV to podcast when you're, cover- and you're covering of this case? Well, a lot was coming out and I wanted to go back in and do the second series of the TV series. And there really wasn't enough to do that. But yet I had thousands of hours of background and detailed information that never made it to the TV series. So it just seemed a natural. Things were starting to emerge in the podcast area. Um, I thought, well, you know what? I've got all this footage. I've got more people to interview. I'll just do it myself. But the big turning point was COVID. I was trapped. Mm -hmm. I'm normally flying back and forth to America filming with a team in Los Angeles. I'm normally out with a film crew 
and here I am trapped under one roof. So Mm -hmm. why not make a podcast where I can do it myself? There's been so many podcasts, great podcasts that have started through the pandemic. A lot of people that I know, especially in, I mean, you're in the TV space, which is entertainment, but a lot of people I've spoken to that are in like the entertainment industry, like people that work on, you know, Broadway and playwrights and actors that are just, they were complete, there was nothing else for them to do. And so they started making podcasts. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's, it, it, and the great part is it doesn't take much to, to start one. And you obviously already have have experience in putting stories together and writing and all that stuff. So it seemed like a like a like a perfect fit for you. Um, real quick before we get into the into the podcast. Now, aside from all of your production work and your diving into this case and and stuff, you've also written two self help books. Like, so what are, are those? Reason what are, what are the self help books about? <laughs> one's called Rewrite Your Life, and one's called Rewrite Your Relationships. And I have various theories about how we stick to the kind of scripts that we grow up with in our lives and how we can actually turn those around. And really, it just started with people saying in the workplace, you know, you've got a bad attitude and that's a horrible thing to say, but sometimes we have things in us that we need to change. So that was something... I felt that would be fun to kind of write about and help people. And it it just came because I do a lot of public speaking and people would come up later and say, that thing that you talked about, and it would be a side thing to my main business thing. Uh And that's what it was. I mean, I made a feature documentary about a side story that was happening. I started another investigation into my own life because I discovered some clues and they ended up upending my whole world because I discovered this massive secret in my family. So that ended up being another kind of period of time where I was doing another investigation uh, into a lot of secrets and lies. In your own life. That, was that, that the one that was called Man on the Bus? Is that yes. the name of that one? Yes, my my parents yeah. were Holocaust survivors who came from Poland, had been lost all their families as Jews coming from Europe. They came to Australia with nobody. They started a family. They had my sister first in Poland, then they had me in Australia. And we just grew up, but I always had this weird idea that I was somehow different, like an implant into this Jewish family that was an Aussie mm-hmm. in a Jewish family. And uh-huh. my mother used to say, you know, Ivinka, don't be ridiculous. You are crazy, you know. And she'd show me the little <laughs> bracelet from the hospital and whatever. But I started looking into things and had a couple of little bits of strange evidence, like a, a long um, history of my mother done on audio uh, for a Jewish museum, and I was going through it. And she suddenly started talking about a man she met on a bus. I mean, who talks about a random passenger they've met on a bus? Right. <laughs> you know, and I started thinking, and I remembered my mother saying when I was a kid, he named streets after us. And I was thinking, who named streets after us? So I got the street directory out. This is only 10 years ago and found two streets named Eve after me and Martha after Uh my mother 
but not Helen after my sister. And then out of the blue, a woman contacted me and said, I believe I'm your half-sister. And I met with her and we looked exactly the same. So after all of that, I unraveled that my mother had met a man on a bus right after arriving into Australia, and she had a secret affair for 15 years with the Aussie man on the bus, who turns out to be my biological father. And long after she and my dad had died, I unraveled this, and remarkably, the guy is still alive. So I'm left with my mother's lover. Who's your father? Who's your biological father? Who's my biological father? And why it's relevant to tell you this now is that he is originally from Tasmania. He built steel hull yachts. He sailed for years and lived on yachts. He's a yachting expert. He was in the Navy. And we bonded over this case. I didn't know him. Uh, I'd met him as a child, but we formed a relationship investigating this case. And he is now turning 98 and still as sharp as a tack, works full-time. It's remarkable. So the two stories were happening at the same time, us unravelling the who killed Bob and me unravelling how did my mother have this secret affair and nobody knew about it. That's that's bananas. Now, I, I need to check out that documentary too. <laughs> what a crazy story. And, and and what a great transition into uh, the, our case that we're talking about today, Bob Chappell and, and Sue Neal Fraser. Is that how you pronounce Correct. it right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Uh, who, you know, this, this case takes place in Tasmania and there's a yacht involved. There's all, all the elements that, that your biological father has, uh, has the background in. So t- tell us about this case. I mean, there's a lot of twists and turns here. And, and, after just reading a little bit about it, I'm curious because you feel you feel pretty strongly that Sue was wrongfully convicted, right? Oh, totally. And you know, when I started, I said, "Look, I believe she's had an unfair trial, and and it was a poor investigation." Now I actually use the words "she is innocent," as do many people. But it didn't start out like that over the years. I didn't just you know come out and go, "Ah, oh, she's innocent." I think she's innocent. Uh-huh. Um, look, it just started with. Uh, Mark, her son-in-law, calling me and saying, you know, Sarah, his wife's stepfather, has vanished. I said, vanished? You know, that's really weird. And he said, yes, off a yacht that was moored right in the River Derwent, which is in the city of Hobart. It wasn't like out in, you know, it was in public view. And the boat was found sinking one early morning after a public holiday, and it was sinking and Bob was missing. And so they salvaged the yacht. There were a few drops of blood. There was a pipe cut in one of the little uh, toilets, and nobody could work out what happened. And at first they didn't say it was a murder, but within a short space of time it became a murder. and. Sue was arrested a few months later. She was the only suspect. That was his longtime partner of 18 years. And a year later, there was a trial, three weeks, and she was unanimously found guilty. So just with a quick glance on, at the case, if you just you know, look at it online, 
it sure looks like they had a hell of a case against her. Can you let's first break down kind of the de- you've, you've given some kind of an overview, but kind of the de- some details of the case and what the case was against Sue. And then I w- and then I want you to dismantle it for me. Okay. So <laughs> really, it there was a famous case in Australia of Lindy Chamberlain where the dingo got her baby. And you might remember right. that Meryl Streep p- played the part in the, the film Evil Angels. And that woman didn't have the um, body language and the reactions that people expected of a mother whose child, a baby, had been taken. Similarly, Sue is a very stoic person. She's actually from the UK and she's learnt to hold her feelings in. So she doesn't cry, she doesn't show her outward emotions to strangers. She does, of mm-hmm. course, to her family. So she was very stoic. And when the police first started saying to her, you know, like what happened and whatever, she started saying there's things wrong on the yacht because they took her on the yacht and she said, oh, the, this is missing and there's a scratch here and there's a the ropes weren't like that and the things, you know, she started pointing out these things and they said, you know, were you home last night? Yes, I, because she'd left him on the yacht the afternoon before and mm-hmm. he had said, I'm going to stay on the yacht and do some work on it. Now, this was the first time he'd ever stayed on the yacht by himself and they'd only had that yacht for one month. They'd just bought it. And it was big. It had three or four cabins, well, four places people could sleep. And they were using mm-hmm. it. They were going to have it as a family kind of fun thing to not do heavy duty sailing because they were older. She was 55. Bob Chappell was 65. And they needed crew. In fact, to sail it down from where they purchased it, they had to have two professional crew. And on that journey down, which was only a month before from Queensland to Tasmania, which is the bottom of Australia, it's beyond the bottom of the mainland, it's an island, they actually required the crew and Bob had to get off the yacht within two days because he had severe nosebleeds. So he was bleeding so badly he Mm -hmm. had to go to hospital. So that okay. so that compromised the crime scene because he'd had this nosebleed. So I'm just adding that in. She sailed down. So his blood's on the boat. His blood is on the boat. He she sailed down with the two professional crew. It took about three weeks. They reunited in Hobart, and a month later, Bob's vanished. And Sue, they said their biggest issues with Sue was that she lied. They asked her where she was in the afternoon. She said she was at a hardware store, a very famous hardware chain in Australia called Bunnings. She said she was there. She wasn't on the footage. They said, were you home last night? She at first said yes, but in fact she wasn't, and we'll go into that. They picked up, they found a red jacket on the shore a few hundred metres away, and they showed it to her and said, is this your jacket? And she said, no. Um, and it was put in the police car and later it turned out to be her jacket. So as what 
were her lies or false memories or her confusion in the midst of massive shock from Bob being missing and the boat sinking, the lies, people could not get past the lies. To add to that, the next day, a guy who had a vendetta for that family and particularly for Sue and Bob came forward and said, oh, Sue plotted to kill her brother many years ago and she also plotted to kill Bob. And that was pretty much the police then built a case around Sue. There were no other suspects. Right. And then there wasn't there something to, there was another witness that came forward and said they they saw the dinghy with a female in it or something that night. Yeah, well, there was a guy parked on the um, this little outcrop, like a little pier, who said he saw a dinghy heading out. But at first it was, he described it heading in, you know, a, a, a right angles to out to the yacht. And he mm-hmm. saw a shape of a person, which he thought an outline was the female, but he never, he wasn't sure about that. He was never sure whether he was in the car or out of the car. He said he was the only person there, but there was a homeless guy with a very big criminal record living right there on that little um, outcrop of land in a car park. So, you know, she was never seen by an eyewitness as being there that night. Right. And there was no forensics also that tied her to the crime at all. So her, her biggest issue was in those, you know, which I mean, it's reasonable that the police would suspect her, I guess. Yeah. And when they, they question her and say, you know, is this your coat? Nope. Never seen it. And then it's later proven to be her coat. And were you home last night? I was. And no, she wasn't. Where did you go to? I went to a hardware store and it seems she didn't go to the hardware store. So you can see why they for sure saw her as a suspect. Absolutely. And on its face, that's, that all sounds pretty damning, um, but you, you've spent years investigating this case, so, so, so tell us why they got the wrong person. Well, for a start, there was a gigantic clue on the deck of the yacht, and it was at first DNA named person E on the yacht, unidentified, mm-hmm. and it was called a large volume sample, and it came from a an area, a luminal positive area, that was probably as big as a regular a large iPad, that kind of area. It wasn't a, a dot. It, was, it wasn't a patch. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a coin. It was a large, like a sheet of paper, regular paper. That person, E, was unidentified until long after Sue had been arrested and her trial was looming and suddenly a match came up to that DNA. And that DNA matched a 15-year-old homeless girl called Megan Vass, 15 at the time. And she's obviously now, this is 13 years ago, this all happened. So she's now in her 20s. And she was brought to court and she denied ever being on the yacht she denied knowing anything about it. And they had a forensic guy who said, oh, that DNA could have been transferred on the boot of a policeman. Now, 
you've got to imagine that yacht is 400, so, you know, 400 metres out in the middle of the river. To get DNA Mm -hmm. to be transferred is quite a miracle and in that large volume and there were no other footprints after that DNA. So over the 13 years, the girl came forward and made a statement five years ago saying, yes, I was there and I was there with other guys and uh, I'm not going to name them, but Sue was killed, Sue wasn't there. Then the police got to her and she made a statement and said, "That oh, I wasn't there, that statement was made under pressure. Then a couple of years later, she went on 60 Minutes and in Australia and revealed, and it's still online, I don't know if you can get it in the States, but she said, yes, I was there, my boyfriend at the time uh, beat Bob Chappell. There was a lot of blood. It went on for a long time. There was another guy there, and um, Sue didn't do this. So then the police said she was pressured again and that she was pressured by a team um, who were working pretty much for my documentaries and that this didn't happen. So It led up to an appeal most recently last year where she was the star witness and day one she said, yes, I was there, there was blood, there was the guys. I vomited on the deck, um, which counts for her DNA. Um, I was Mm -hmm. scared, I was 15, I don't remember a whole lot and so on. And the next day she was cross-examined by a, a prosecutor doing his job And she folded and said, no, I wasn't there. But at the time, she had actually been pregnant. She had a a child after that. She was highly strung. She is a witness that really needed some kind of witness support and protection. Um, So she reneged. They had to say it was an unreliable witness. And Sue lost her appeal, although one judge did say it's a wrongful conviction. Now it's going to the High Court of Australia. So two weeks after the appeal, Megan Vass did another interview with a journalist who writes wrongful conviction reports, and she said, I was under pressure, yes, I was there, um, and that's what happened. So we have that concurrent story of a teenage girl scared out of her mind trying to tell what happened, but also being freaked out about the police, being freaked out about the people that did it. It's, it's, it's crazy to me. I mean, I can see why how there's some reliability issues because she keep changing her story. But her story's confirmed by the large volume of her DNA at the crime scene. It is exactly. That seems really difficult to get around. It is very difficult to get around. And, you know, the... The issue of transference, I mean, DNA solves crimes. That's how we've solved a lot of unsolved mysteries. That's how we've overturned Mm -hmm. wrongful convictions. And in this case, it is being sidelined. And in fact, at trial, the prosecutor called it a red herring. And in fact, when the defence discovered that Megan Vass lied about her whereabouts that night because she was signed out of a shelter, 
She'd actually lied in court. The defence asked to recall her. They asked to recall the forensics officer and they were denied by the judge. So that became a really powerful legal issue. And let me tell you, in a small place like Tasmania, it's very difficult. That judge is now the Chief Justice of Tasmania. So it's very difficult to overturn something that would really disrupt the police force, the political agenda. But, you know, there is a former Premier of Tasmania who is now speaking out saying, this has to change, there has to be an inquiry, the woman is innocent. So there's a very big divide in the state of Tasmania. And as more and more people are hearing about it, they're signing a petition. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a shocking case. The woman is, you know, now well into her 60s. She's now in a wheelchair. She's lost, you know, her mother, who she was sole carer of. She's had four grandchildren that she can't, uh, you know, spend time with. It's, it's a tragedy. God, that's terrible. Is there anything else that they had working for her as far as appeal or was the DNA the big one that seemed to have been ignored by the court? Yeah, they did another thing. During the court case, they showed the jury a photograph of the dinghy that belonged to the yacht and it was glowing blue with luminol. And for many people who watch CSI and, you know, we're used to seeing glowing luminol meaning blood, but in fact, luminol reacts to a hundred different things. It can react to cleaning Mm -hmm. agents and vegetable matter and all sorts of things. There was no confirmed blood in the dinghy at all, but yet the prejudicial photo was shown to the jury. So that is another issue that is now causing a lot of consternation. But perhaps the biggest one that a couple of journalists were really shocked about was that the proposition the police put was that she murdered him in the yacht. The yacht has three levels. It's not one of those Mm -hmm. luxury yachts you see on the TV reality shows, but it was a 54-foot yacht. Mm -hmm. They said that she single-handedly, a woman with a disc back injury that couldn't lift things and was reported as being unable to use the winch by herself, they said she got his body out of the bottom of the yacht, up a level, then up another level, then up the stairs, then up and onto the deck, and then up and over, lowered it into a dinghy, all in rough water in the middle of the night, took the dinghy out to the middle of the river further away, strapped a fire extinguisher weighing, you know, 20 or 30 pounds to him and threw him overboard, came back and sunk the boat. And then escaped on the dinghy, presumably. Yes, the dinghy which had no fuel, virtually little or no fuel used. So, but the proposition had no evidence. That was a supposition. And my team and a number of experts have worked out that the body was not taken out through the entry hatch. It was actually taken up through the saloon through a hatch above a couch where there were some vertical blood drops. There was a scuff mark on the uh, hatch above 
There were coins dropped on the outside of the deck where perhaps, and Bob used to have coins in his pockets. There were scuff marks up there, black scuff marks. There was a rope hanging into that hatch. And the only way you can get a person out of that hatch is with two people. Right. And so the, I assume you got all that from the police files. We got a lot from, because all of this was disclosed to defence, Sue's interviews. She, she was constantly trying to help police. But, you know, the lesson here is she talked and talked and talked and said, maybe it was right. this. And she said, the fire extinguisher's missing. Maybe it was used to weight him down. Well, it turns out the fire extinguisher, the old decommissioned one, may not have even been on the yacht because Bob may have, in clearing up paint tins and clearing things away, may have got rid of it because two people who looked for a fire extinguisher in the days leading up did not see the huge one that was missing. There was so much improbability and I think that what happened was that the guy coming forward who said Sue plotted to kill her brother 10 years before and then Bob, who had a criminal background himself, it turned out he had been arrested two weeks before and was trying to get off his own charges and asked, will this help me? But the court believed him as being a reliable witness. But not the girl who says she was there and her DNA confirms that she was there. No. It seems that the Australian justice system has a lot of similarities to the way the American justice system works. Because, man, what a mess. I know. And the thing that's terrible is who do you scream to? You can only go back into that justice system, which is like a little funnel. You have to funnel it in their language, in their way, in their thing. You can't go to some reasonable body like they do in the UK uh, and Canada, they don't do that in Australia. They don't have a criminal case review commission where you can say there's A, B, C, D, E that all are wrong and there's, you know, Mm X, Y, Z that shows she's innocent. You just can't do that. Has your work on the podcast, do you think, has it helped to move the ball forward in the actual legal system? I think that a lot of people are becoming aware of it and questioning it. And we fed the work we did in our investigation to the lawyers who put forward the first leave to appeal. And we gave them, you know, at least a dozen new witnesses who saw things that night in that river that were never reported. So, you know, we uncovered that there had been break-ins and thefts up and down the river that, you know, I mean, the police never investigated some young male offenders that the head of the police investigation told me two years after the trial in an interview, he said that Megan Vass hung around with young male offenders known to steal from boatyards and break into boatyards and steal from boats. That was never told to the jury. So they never had the chance to consider other options. I don't blame the jury. You know, to give you one example, and I can't believe this could happen in the United States, I want to read to you what the prosecutor said to the jury. 
She's walking backwards and forwards, delivers a blow, a blow or blows, or maybe stabs him with a screwdriver. I don't know. He doesn't look around and so the body doesn't have any marks of what you'd expect if someone had come down there, a stranger, intent on doing him harm. The body, I suggest, would have marks consistent only with being delivered by someone he knew to be there, who he knew and expected to be behind him. There was no body. The body was never found. I was just going to say, like, that's all nonsense. There's no body. She doesn't know what injury. That was. What a bunch of bullshit. That was said to the jury. Also, they said to her during the trial, you know, she, she was talking about a couple of little wrenches that do small bolts. And the prosecutor said, I bet it was a big wrench. You've killed him with a big wrench. You struck him from behind. And the judge even repeated the use of a wrench as a possibility. It, you know, it was, it was awful. There was a rumor going around Hobart that Sue had killed her first husband. He's alive and well. He was one of the first people I interviewed. If anybody's really concerned about this case, there's a change.org petition, which is on savesue.com. One incredible thing that happened in this case is the reason Sue didn't tell people that she went down to the foreshore that night, because she was at the foreshore that night. Sue got an amazing phone call at 10pm that night from a total stranger who rang her, and she'd never heard of him before, rang her and said, Bob's daughter, who has mental health issues, believes that something terrible is going to happen and the yacht is going to sink and something really bad is going to happen to Bob. So Sue went down there actually to kind of look at the yacht, see that it's okay, but she couldn't see it, it was pitch black, and to collect her car, which she leaves, which she she does a lot of walking because she thought that the mental health issue of the girl was going to become a huge issue. And when the police said, were you home last night? She thought, well, I don't want them delving into this personal mental health issue of Bob's daughter. And anyway, the police should be looking for Bob, not asking me what I did. So that is freaky. What a coincidence, the biggest coincidence in Australian criminal history. That's crazy. Well, there's a bunch of cool interviews. This story, obviously, is far more complex than you can break down in a few minutes here. The, the limited series is 12 episodes, plus there's some bonus episodes, right? Correct. It's all very fresh. So her name is Eve Ash. The podcast is called Who Killed Bob? Uh, you can find it wherever you get your podcast. Check it out. Could be your next big true crime binge. I'm definitely going. I, I've, I've listened to a little bit of it before uh, coming on here with you and after talking to you, I have to hear the rest of the story. So I'm gonna, I will definitely be checking it out. Thanks, Bob. Yep. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for taking the time. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. 
If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is truecrimebinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.